You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So, so what Reed read through was Hannah's prayer, historically referred to as Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song, obviously because it is Hannah praying or singing. And, and so, but, but we need context for, for this prayer to really make sense. Uh, because on the surface, it's a beautiful psalm. And if we found it in the book of Psalms, we wouldn't be surprised, and, and we would use it to teach what it looks like to worship. But in the context of the situation, it's even more glorious, because Hannah is worshiping a God who is sovereign and powerful and loving, because formerly she was barren, and now she has had child. Uh, we read in 1 Samuel 1 that Hannah was... Uh, afflicted with the inability to conceive. And not only that, but she was mocked, she was ridiculed, her identity was called into question, and she was left in this place of hopelessness and an emotional state of anguish. And she cried to the Lord in chapter 1, verse 11, saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And so Hannah prays this bold prayer, that the physically impossible would be made possible, that in return, God would receive glory. She says, Lord, give me a son, and I will devote him to you. And really what she's referring to is devoting him to learn under the priests and essentially take what is referred to as the vow of the Nazarite, which is... um, for lack of a better term, and without getting too deep into it, it they were the spiritual all-stars of Israel. Uh, they were the guys who observed the law very strictly, who were very cautious about ceremonial cleanliness and all of these things. And, and she tells the Lord, if you give me a son, I will devote him to this. And then the Lord responds gracefully and specifically to his servant Hannah in love and gives her a son. And, and then after weaning the child, she takes him up to Eli the priest and, and gives him over to Eli to be trained up in righteousness. And after this, she prays this prayer. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is a profound prayer. I wish that these were the kinds of prayers that came out of my mouth. These prayers that just drip with godliness and with an understanding of the divine far beyond what I understand. And it's especially surprising to me that after experiencing this specific moment of grace in receiving a child that formerly she was not able to have, her prayer is not one of going on and on about what a blessing it is to have her son Samuel. She doesn't go on and on about the specific miracle that she has experienced. She doesn't worship endlessly about the fact that God opened her womb that was formerly barren, which is what I would expect. But rather, Hannah, in a very profound way, recognizes that the specific act of grace that she has experienced in childbirth is revealing of the full glory and full character of a sovereign God. She, we have so much to learn from the way that Hannah worships. Because she doesn't worship the actions of God, she worships the God who acts. She doesn't say, oh God, you are the one who has saved me from this physical affliction. Or you are the one who has saved me from being mocked. But she says, no, there's none holy like you, Lord. There's no rock besides our God. I rejoice in your salvation. She says, you're the Lord that kills and brings to life. And she goes on and on and on describing the character of a God worthy of our worship. And that's because all of God's actions, large or small, are ultimately telling of his character. And they ultimately point towards the full revelation of his character in Jesus. And we might think that it's strange that Hannah would be pointing towards Jesus or worshiping the God who would establish the Messiah, Jesus, long before Jesus was ever born, even before Israel had a king. But in verse 10, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Folks, this was decades before Israel ever had a king. And Hannah is worshiping the Lord in that he will establish, exalt, and anoint his king. She's not talking about Saul. She's not talking about David. She's talking about the ultimate king of kings, the ultimate lord of lords, and the ultimate restoration of creation, Jesus. In her body being restored, we get a picture of the restoration that is to be had for all people in Jesus. In her being given a son, we have a shadow of the Lord sending his son such that people would experience salvation. Another thing I love about this text and I think that we can learn is that Hannah's salvation and the salvation of God's covenant people are necessarily linked. It's obvious when we read this text that God has a specific care for Hannah. It's obvious that he loves her in a way that is intimate and personal. He heard her prayer. 
He healed her body, and he made her a mother. It's obvious that God cares deeply for Hannah. But who is the son that she's had? The son is named Samuel. And as Samuel is a boy even, he is called by God to be a prophet, to proclaim the truth of God to Israel. And Samuel plays this really key historical role in the history of redemption of people through Jesus in that he is the very prophet that ushers in the age of kings ruling over Israel. Knowing and warning the people that they would put false hope in human kings. That these kings would be marked by failure, wickedness, and that they would be marked by idolatry because of it. But nevertheless, being faithful to his people and obedient to the Lord, he anoints Saul as king over Israel, the first human king to rule over the nation. And then out of the line of Saul comes David, and ultimately out of the line of David, a child is born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago by the name of Jesus, who is the full picture of what it means to be king over God's covenant people. The salvation that Hannah experienced is linked to our salvation. Because the birth of her son played an instrumental role in us having any way to understand the full picture of who Jesus is. In the failures of the kings that were anointed by Samuel in their shortcomings, in the people's idolatrous worship of them, in these kings' failure to serve their people well, we get the picture of a good king in Jesus who is without failure, who is without an end to his rule, who is without a boundary to his borders that he reigns. Because Samuel was born, Jesus makes sense. And so we have something to learn from this as well in that our personal salvation is necessarily linked to the salvation of all those who are in the covenant community. And Hannah recognizes that she's experienced salvation. She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. And this salvation is both physical, spiritual, and mental and emotional She's experienced the obvious physical salvation of her body being healed and the ability to give birth to a child. The ability to carry a child in her womb for nine months in a healthy fashion. That's a miracle. It's a miracle for a woman who was not formally barren, but especially especially a miracle for one who was. And she recognizes that this is salvation, but her prayer resounds with the salvation that she's experienced and that she no longer feels less than. She no longer questions her worth, and she certainly no longer questions her God. She has been given the salvation of understanding God as one who is worthy of all worship and glory and honor, even in the one specific act of grace that she experienced. If you're a believer in the room, you have experienced at least one specific act of grace. And that is that you've been gifted with a faith to trust in the grace that has been offered through Jesus. You've been gifted with the faith to trust that even though, like Hannah, you were unable to produce what you put hope in, 
You are unable to manifest any sort of righteousness or achievement on your own, but rather you trusted in the works of Jesus for righteousness. You trusted in his resurrection to conquer death for you. But a newsflash to us is that it is not just about our personal relationship with God through Jesus. Although it is absolutely true that God loves me in a specific way and calls me specifically his son. And that knowing all of the list of my sins and my failures, he was punished in my stead in the form of Jesus on the cross for those specific actions. Sure, God loves me deeply and personally and intimately. But my salvation is linked to others. And this is the call to evangelism that we see in 1 Samuel 2. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul tells the church in Corinth, he said, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Believer in the room, you have been reconciled unto God through Christ that you might partake in the ministry of reconciliation. Just as Samuel's, Samuel being the representation of the physical salvation of Hannah played into the salvation of many through him as a prophet pointing towards Jesus, so does the truth that you have been reconciled unto God, that you might invite other people to trust in Jesus for reconciliation. If we sit and, and dwell and only worship that God has loved me individually, and that God has saved me from my sin, and, and that's all that we dwell on. If Hannah had only prayed about the fact that God had rescued her from her physical infirmity, then it would not be a full picture of the glory of God. But much more can we worship when we realize that not only have I experienced this salvation in Jesus, but that others can as well, and I can take part in that. We can learn from this story, this historical account of a woman experiencing salvation and her son playing an instrumental role in the history of Israel, ultimately leading to Jesus, to understand that when we trusted in Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf, we were also invited into inviting others to do so. And so the practical applications through this text are clear. First, let's be a people that worship like Hannah. Let's be a people that in the midst of experiencing any act of grace from God, worship his full character. Let's not be caught up in worshiping God because in specific actions, but worshiping the fullness of God because of specific actions. In the birth of baby Olivia, the good news is not only that Marshall and Nicole have a daughter now. The good news is that that is a picture of God restoring creation that has been and will fully be restored in Jesus at the end of all things. 
the good news when I experience the love of the brothers and sisters in the family of God is not just that that is emotionally comforting to me or provides me with a social place to fit in. But the good news is that I have been fully accepted and invited to be a son of God in his family through Jesus. The specific acts of grace we experience are only shadows of the fullness of grace that was presented to us in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So let's worship like that. The second key application to this is that we would be evangelists. That we would not hoard the personal grace that we've experienced to ourselves, but we would realize that it is necessarily linked to those who came before us and those who will believe after us. I think that is most clear when we realize how we ourselves believed. When we recount on our personal testimony. Because the truth is, at some point, somebody took the risk socially and stepped out of their comfort zone thinking they probably didn't have the perfect words to express the truth to you, thinking they probably weren't learned enough, thinking that you probably wouldn't respond well, but they nevertheless shared with you that there is life to be had and hope to be found in God through Jesus, and you believed. Why would you not also act in that way? Let us not be a people crippled by fear, that are afraid we don't have the diction to orate something that is beautiful and profound. Or that we don't have the theological savvy to explain all of the reasons that there's atonement in Jesus. You don't need to have a full grasp on the doctrine of election to be able to invite someone to believe that Jesus is Lord and that he is our only hope. The truth of the matter is most people come to faith after somebody shares with them an imperfect representation of a perfect God. No matter how much we study, no matter how much we pray, our words will fall short. But we have the opportunity to partake in the kingdom being restored as we share with others the truth of the gospel. And so, so for believers in the room, that is the encouragement. Let's worship like Hannah and let's, let's evangelize in light of the truth that Hannah's salvation played into the salvation of many, as does ours. But for the non-believer in the room, all of this is a mystery. All of this does not yet make sense. In fact, you've probably heard this word gospel or this understanding of salvation through Jesus, and that has not been clear to you. First and foremost, I pray that it would be made clear to you by the Spirit, because I can't do it. But secondly, I would like you to consider that the same God who restored Hannah's body thousands of years ago is the God who has given us a Savior in Jesus. A man who was obedient and perfect in ways that we all know we cannot be. And not only that, but 
but he was murdered and arrested and punished as a criminal. Not just in the physical, but even the wrath of God was poured out on him for my specific sins and also for yours. And it didn't end there. Because there he is dead and we're still without hope. But he rose. He rose in the body from death, conquering it. That we don't have to fear it. Knowing that for those who are in Christ, for those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation and restoration, we will not experience death. In fact, that's why the New Testament refers to the physical death of believers as sleeping. Because there's life after this, eternally to be had in God through Jesus. The restoration of Hannah's body was just a shadow of the restoration that the kingdom of God has experienced in Jesus. And for those of us who are in the room who have experienced this faith in Christ that saves, the restoration that we have experienced in the present is only a shadow of the full restoration of all things that will come when Jesus returns. And that is why the small and specific acts of grace lead us to worship this God of glorious character and and constant grace. Because when Nicole's body was healed and Olivia was born, we get a picture of a time when there will be no more physical ailment. When there will be no more nights of sitting in a truck and weeping because my friends are hurting. There will be a time when all of those things are gone. And so, if you're a believer in the room, let's worship. Let's evangelize. And if you're not a believer in the room, I would beg you to consider that this God who restored Hannah's body can restore you. This God who gave Hannah hope and identity can likewise give you hope and identity. And ultimately, this God that desperately, specifically, and fiercely loved Hannah, desperately and fiercely and specifically loves you. And the only way to experience that is through his son, Jesus, the king of kings, the one that David was just a shadow of and that Saul was just a shadow of. And so let's pray with Hannah and rejoice her with her.